Uh, Good to see you. Let's turn in our Bible, shall we, to John chapter 16. Uh, John 16. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read from the second part of verse 4 just to the end of 15. And this is the passage we're going to deal with tonight. So John 16, 4b to 15. And before we read it together, let's uh, pray and ask for God's help in understanding what we come to. Let's pray together. Anoint our eyes, O holy dove, that we may prize this book of love. Unstop our ears made deaf by sin, that we may hear your voice within. Break our hard hearts, Jesus, our Lord. And in our inmost parts, hide your sweet word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 16, second part of verse 4. Jesus speaking, I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Now... I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you. More than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said... The Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Amen. This is God's word. Let's have the first slide up, shall we? We uh, we have a tendency to think that sharing the gospel with people is a really hard thing to do. Even when we really want to share it, which many of us actually do. So whether we're new, brand new Christians trying to pluck up the courage to share our new news of becoming Christians with maybe family members or friends that we are close to, or whether we are seasoned Christians with, once again, another opportunity laid before us to share the gospel with a colleague uh, at work or a friend in the club or something like that, um, we can struggle. We often find it hard And we find it hard because we're conscious, I suppose, of what we were thinking about last week in our series in John, 
that some people in the world might hate us. That some people in the world, because of who we are, because of what we believe, because of what we speak about, might try to loosen some relational ties with us because they think we're, we're basically odd or stupid for believing what we believe. And all of these things, and actually a whole bunch of other things, can lead us to feel quite worried about sharing the gospel with people and can lead us in some sense to, to start to shrink back from evangelism and shrink back from the opportunities that come our way. Well, I think John 16 is refreshing for us tonight because it tells us that Jesus' followers are not ill-equipped when it comes to sharing the gospel with others. In John 14, where Jesus has already promised the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit to his disciples, but now to these same men, he says, the same Spirit is coming, that is coming, that I've promised you uh, about, will be an empowering presence also. Not just comforting, but empowering presence. And in verse 7, we see this, the Holy Spirit described as a counselor. Now, that's not in the sense of like a therapist or a marriage counselor, something like that. More in the sense of being an advocate, okay? Someone who advises, someone who comes alongside to convince in a legal way. Um, and in this sense in particular, in relation to the role of the Holy Spirit, to speak the word of God and to mediate the very presence of God to the people of God. And how precious is this news for us? How precious this news back then for those disciples? For three years in particular for them, Jesus has been their counselor. He's been their advocate, hasn't he? The very word of God himself, as John 1 told us, and the very son of God, as John tells us towards the end of the gospel also, Jesus has spoken, indeed, even while he has been with them, all that the Father has given him. So they have had, you know, such connections with God. They have heard the very word of God. Jesus said in John 12, 49, I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. And it's with that in mind that we can understand some of their alarm at the fact that Jesus is saying, now I'm going to go away. I am returning to the Father who sent me. But Jesus reassures them in verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. We don't often feel good when we experience loss, do we? Whether we lose a friend or we say goodbye to a family member or something like that, we experience grief. There's a, there's a mourning that is completely attached to that. So how could it possibly be that this one that they love, Jesus, the one who has been their advocate, their counselor, their guide throughout these three years, who is about to go away, how could it possibly be this loss be good? Wouldn't it be better for Jesus to stay? I mean, even after he had risen from the dead, surely that would help the mission of the church. I mean, what if he was here? I mean, we, sometimes Christians here might have thought before, oh, wouldn't it be great to just go and be with Jesus? It, it would just be superb. Well, it would be. But here's why I think it's, it's good for the disciples that Jesus returns to the Father. Jesus has been Christ's advocate. Uh, Jesus is the, the, the advocate to the world. But now that Jesus is ascended, risen and ascended, 
He is now our advocate in heaven, pleading our case before the Father. But his work of convicting the world of sin and equipping, advising, being the advocate, coming alongside his disciples to equip them for sharing the gospel, well, he's not left us without help. He sends us the Holy Spirit to continue the prosecuting work of convicting the world and building up the church through his advocacy. The Holy Spirit sent to do actually globally what Jesus could not do locally and bodily. Okay? In the church, the Holy Spirit in particular will apply the ministry of Jesus Christ and his teaching to each and every believer throughout the nations in a way that the incarnate Christ could not, purely because he was embodied and in one location. I think this is exactly what we see in terms of just getting a bite-sized theology of the Spirit This is what we see that was promised throughout the Old Testament. In the very beginning, Genesis introduces the Holy Spirit to us as the powerful breath of God, active through the Word of God, both in the world and through God's people. And then throughout the Old Testament, certain people, in particular situations, were anointed with the Holy Spirit and filled with the Spirit. Generally, those were prophets declaring the Word of God and kings leading the people of God. Sometimes it was larger, individu- uh, larger groups of individuals for particular purposes. But it's these people in particular that were anointed with the Holy Spirit and enabled to preach God's word and do good works. But not everyone knew personally the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. But there was this promise that one day this incredible blessing of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit would be for all people. Not just a privileged few would proclaim God's word. All of God's people would know God, proclaim God's works, and know God indeed living in them. How would this happen? Well, through the coming of the promised Messiah King, who John presents to us extremely clearly in his gospel as Jesus, the Son of God. And on this Messiah, on Christ, the Spirit will come in great power. And both, again, his word and his work will testify to his identity as the Son of God and also reveal his mission to seek and save the lost, to lay down his life for the sheep. Isn't this exactly what we've seen as we've walked through John? The Christ who was anointed by the Spirit to preach good news is Jesus Christ himself And his going, now, as he says to his disciples, via the cross and via the grave, ascending to the Father's right hand, will not only be for the disciples' good, but it will be for our good, even graciously for the world's good. Because by his going, he inaugurates this new age, this promised age, where the Holy Spirit would come. And this, this is what fuels our evangelism. This is what equips us when we find evangelism to be hard. This is what we need. He is what we need to open our mouths to proclaim Christ. So in John 16, there are two particular elements of the Spirit's work which will help the disciples take up the gospel torch and even today help us when evangelism is hard. 
And uh, here's the two things that I want us to see. Number one, the Spirit convicting the world of guilt. And number two, the Spirit guiding the church into truth. So number one, it is to the world's advantage that Jesus goes to the Father because the Spirit that he sends will convict the world of guilt. Okay? Verse 8, look with me. When he comes... He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, to convict means, in this sense, to basically expose something. To make it known to a person so that they actually feel the shame of an action that they have committed. Now, many people in this world will walk around not knowing that there is something wrong in their hearts. When I was at uni, uh, I used to play for the CU football team, and uh, there was an occasion where we were playing in Dundee at a, at a particularly muddy pitch, and uh, it, w- it was terrible. I remember just getting ready to, to take a shot. I planted my left foot on the ground, just ready to score a goal, clearly. Um, and next thing you know, this burly defender came from the right-hand side and launched himself at the ball, apparently. Okay, and hit my leg. Now, it was quite sore. Okay, but I got up and I ran it off and then it didn't seem to be that sore. I actually took the penalty with that leg. Do you know what I found out later? It was broken. Now, not obviously broken in two like that, but don't belittle my story, please. I am a hero. No, I'm not. Um, It was broken. I had completely torn all of the ligaments down the left-hand side of my ankle and there was an avulsion fracture, which means that my ligaments that had pulled away from my bone had basically plucked out a bit of my bone. Yuck! Now, I didn't know that until that night after a complete failed attempt um, to walk around for the rest of the day uh, until the doctor showed me the x-ray and said, look at this. Have you ever broken your leg before? No. Then you have done today, was what he said. Now, I walked around that day particularly immediately after that football match, even during the second half, and barely noticed it. But not until I was shown in this x-ray did I actually realize, look, there's something seriously wrong with my leg. And just as the doctor would hold up an x-ray, point out this fracture, so the spirit, in a sense, holds up our, the hearts of the folks in the world, points to what's broken, and according to verses 8 to 11, shows us basically three things in particular. Sin righteousness and judgment these are areas in which we are broken these are areas in which people in the world are thoroughly fractured let me just look at these three things quickly the first thing the spirit exposes in terms of sin the world's sinful state look at verse 9 in regard to sin because men do not believe in me Men do not believe me. That's really simple, isn't it? That's what we've been thinking about through this whole Gospel of John. What has John been wanting us to see? To see who Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of God, and then believe in him. How has Jesus broadened that out for us? Well, he has said all along, even from John's testimony at the beginning of the Gospel, behold, everybody look and see the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Okay, it's our sin that is our problem. And many, in the pe- many people in the world do not see themselves as being broken. They do not see themselves as being sinners. 
In fact, most people, I would suggest, even in our culture and in our city, would consider themselves to be in some kind of morally neutral state where we decide by our own measurements what's right and what's wrong. Well, the problem is we're not in a morally neutral state in God's eyes. We start off actually condemned. Did you know that? We read that already in John chapter 3, 18, didn't we? Whoever believes in him, as in the Son of God, Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands, what? Condemned already. Why? What's his crime? What is this person's sin? Jesus says, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So we're broken in terms of our sin. Secondly, in regard to our righteousness, the Spirit exposes in conviction of the world's guilt, the world's inadequate view of righteousness. How does the world define righteousness? How, does, how do the people in our city, in our university and workplaces, define what righteousness is? Well, I think we'll find, on a, on a broad scale, they define righteousness in relative terms. Uh, I suppose they say, well, I'm not as bad as Danny down the street. He cheats on his wife, and I would never cheat on my wife. That may be the kind of thing that you could hear. Uh, everyone in their relative righteousness constructs certain rules or laws that they will live by, believing that even if they just keep them, they are more right than others, even to the point sometimes if, if they have any kind of view of a God that exists believing that they would be right before God. The problem is we start judging other people based on how well they meet our standards. But the biggest problem with that is that fundamentally we have an inadequate sense of what righteousness actually is. And this is what the Holy Spirit convicts the world of. It's as if the Spirit says, listen, you need to stop this. <laughs> this inadequate and fractured view you're going to damn yourselves if you keep on measuring yourselves by yourselves. There is only one who is righteous, only one who is worthy, as Jesus goes on to say, one who is worthy of actually going to the Father, remembering what Andy was emphasizing at the start of our service regarding the holiness of God, who can dwell in his presence. He whose heart is pure, clean, holy like him and the only one indeed who is ever worthy in that regard of living that sinless life a life of perfection is Jesus Christ he is the standard of righteousness that people are supposed to compare themselves with and when we do that we see how far we fall short and indeed, the world is convicted of guilt in this regard. That's why we are called to come to Jesus in repentance and faith, to believe in him, and we say to trust in him. Indeed, that's what Jesus calls on the crowd to do at the end of John chapter 12, before he takes his disciples into this upper room. Trust in me. Trust in the sufficiency of my blood to cover your sin. Trust in the Father's promise that when I die, you die. That when I was nailed to the cross, I bore your sin. I took your wrath upon myself and I clothed you in my righteousness. It's as if you had never sinned and it's as if I was the worst sinner ever. 
That's what Jesus has done for us. That's the right view of righteousness. But the world has the wrong, convoluted, twisted view of righteousness. And it's a broken thing. And that, again, is what the world convicts, is what the Spirit convicts the world of. And then thirdly, the Spirit exposes the judgment that awaits an unbelieving world. In regard to judgment, verse 11 Because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The prince of this world is Satan. And he exists. He lives in constant rebellion against God and his purposes. And no doubt, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it looked like Satan's victory. But in fact, it was Christ who won victorious by his death, certainly. But by his resurrection, also. And this, again, is what the Holy Spirit points us to. It it, it draws up really what was seen in our Acts 2 reading. These people put Jesus to death thinking they were doing a righteous thing. They thought he was the guilty one and they were right. When in fact it was the other way around. And this is indeed what the Holy Spirit wants the world to know. That their guilt may be impressed upon them. That they may see their brokenness. He wants the world to waken up to the foolishness of the reality of the fact that if they reject God and, and if they reject the offer of following Jesus and being his disciple, naturally they continue on in being a follower of the prince of this world, the devil. And the spirit is trying to convict the world, wanting the world to know that those who follow him, the devil, will end up like him, condemned for judgment. I used to work in a hospital, and uh, as you would expect, great care was taken over things like infection control, even to the point that if something like a mattress that looked, that looked absolutely fine had, had something even slightly bigger than a, ping, a pin prick in it, it was declared unfit for the hospital, and the word condemned would be written across this mattress in permanent black marker it was good for only one thing to be thrown out these are the things that the spirit is convicting the world in relation to if there is a brokenness in any of us if there's a pinprick of sin in our life that light that tiny then the word condemned is written across you And the only way that that condemnation and that judgment can be removed is by you putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the reasons I've already mentioned. Because he died to take away your sin because he took it on himself and he came declaring that those who believe in him will live as he has lived and enter into eternal life clothed in his righteousness so the Holy Spirit works in the world to convict the world of its guilt holding up the x-ray showing up the brokenness and do you not think that this is actually a wonderfully gracious thing to do this is God's activity God the Holy Spirit is active in the world at present doing these very things and that is a gracious thing to do He's demonstrating his patience here. He could leave people steeped in their sin, but no, it is even 
even to the unbeliever's advantage that Jesus leaves his disciples and returns to the Father and ushers in this new age of the Holy Spirit. It is to the unbeliever's advantage that Christ dies so that, so that even unbelievers might know the conviction of the Spirit as Christ's righteousness is revealed. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I can't help wondering if the things I've spoken about even in the last few minutes might just have described or helped you understand something that you may be experiencing even now or in recent days in your heart and in your mind. I wonder if you see God's gracious work in pointing out what is broken in you. You see his loving offer of gospel relief. What should you do today? Well, you should do the same as what the crowd did. Many of them did, certainly. In Acts chapter 2, we saw Peter freshly filled with the Holy Spirit, standing up, proclaiming what? Did you see it? The same three things. Sin, righteousness, judgment. They had rejected Jesus. They had missed Christ's righteousness. And then Peter warned them of judgment to come. What happened to them? Many of them were what? Cut to the heart. That's conviction. What then shall we do, they said? Maybe that's a question you're asking. Repent and be baptized is the answer. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and, and you, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, church, doesn't this give you courage and strength in your evangelistic efforts? Doesn't the fact that the, the Spirit is before us and already at work in the world, doesn't that encourage you to realize that you're not on your own in this endeavor? And that he is indeed not only, if you like to use a farming analogy, he's not only supplying you, the church, with the seed, the gospel seed. He's preparing the ground. He's preparing hearts to receive it. Does that come into our mind when we think sharing the gospel is hard? I'm going to be rejected by this guy. I'm, oh, I'm, they're going to think I'm a weirdo. Or I really value this friendship and I'm really not sure what, if I'm prepared to lose it. As we talk about Jesus with our friends, colleagues, family members, the Spirit is at work to convict them of sin. Despite the fact that many will not respond with repentance and faith, we know that because God is still at work today calling people from every nation, even ours, then people in Edinburgh will respond. People in Edinburgh will respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. Now, not only is the Spirit at work, though, to convict the world of its guilt, the helper, the counselor, the advocate comes to the apostles and the believers after them to do what? Secondly, to guide them into all truth. Well, Jesus is going away again. It's a good thing. It is to the, world, it's to the church's advantage that Jesus goes to the Father. Because the spirit that he sends will guide the church into all truth and this so that Christ may be glorified. 
Well, what does the Spirit do in the church? He conducts, conducts the church to the truth of Christ. Essentially, that's his role. And he preaches to the church the very word of Christ. That's the content of the message that he declares and of the word that he explains. So the Spirit conducts the apostles into the truth of Christ. Now, I think this is a particular application for the disciples. Verse 13, look with me. When he, the Spirit, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, the Greek word for guide here is taken from a root word, which means to be something like a conductor or a a teacher of some sort. And this refers, of course, to his role, uh, not just the content of what he will share. And if you look at verse 12, Jesus said, Jesus has already said, I have much more to say to you, apostles, disciples, more than you can now bear. They do not yet have the Holy Spirit in them. It's almost like they cannot cope and understand. Jesus still, we see in some of the other Gospels, referred to their dullness, as it were. But he's saying at the moment, you cannot cope with the truth I have to teach you. And again, here's where we see that his death, his resurrection, his ascension are absolutely essential again. Because his going and the Spirit's coming will enable the disciples to be led deeper into the truth. To a greater knowledge of Jesus Christ. And therefore with that, a greater love for the Father. Empowered even with the ability to grasp it. At the moment, I have more to teach you, but you cannot bear it. But if I go, I will send the advocate, the counselor, who will declare to you, speak to you, tell you my words, and you'll be able to grasp it. Isn't that precious? It's a great, great thought. So important, in particular, for these remaining 11 men in this room, this upper room, they will be conducted by the Holy Spirit into truth about Christ that they will not only be able to bear, but some of them inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. These are the men who will be carried along by the Spirit in the writing of the New Testament. Indeed, you're reading one of them tonight. The spirit of truth by his indwelling presence is conducting these men deeper into Christ when he comes. When the spirit comes that with one voice they can do what Christ commands them to do in 1527. To testify about Christ. And this again should give us confidence in our evangelism, shouldn't it? What's your tool for evangelism? Do we use it? It's God's words. Should give us this truth that we are considering now. Should give us confidence in God's word. You know, because John, who wrote this gospel that we are reading together, is in this upper room. He's hearing these words. He's soon to see Christ crucified. Soon to see the risen Christ. Soon to see him ascend. And he is soon to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the words that he has written that we are now reading, are not his devising. They are the Spirit's words concerning Jesus Christ. These words don't originate, as Peter says, in the will of man, 
but men spoke as they were what? Carried along by whom? A chariot? A ghost writer? No, by the Holy Spirit himself. It's incredible. These things should give us more confidence in the word of Christ that we have before us for the Holy Spirit is the author. And these disciples are not only conducted by the Spirit into the truth of Christ, to know Christ in a deeper way, they are prepared to preach and testify to Christ and about Christ by the preacher of Christ par excellence. The Spirit preaches to the church the word of Christ. Look with me at verse 14. He will bring glory to me by taking it from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Even go back to the second part of verse 13. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. The Greek word that's in there and for verse 14 for making it known is from the same root word for messenger. Some would suggest pastor at times. But listen to, the, listen to this. The word is prefixed with, with the Greek prefix ana, which really ramps up the intensity of the word, which tells us that the Holy Spirit is to the disciples and to the church the super messenger, the super pastor, the preacher par excellence, which tells us that all that he is declaring is true. All that he is proclaiming is perfect. Because all he preaches is Christ. And he is making Jesus known to us, not necessarily in the same way as he did to those apostles entrusted with the writing of Scripture, but similarly equipping us to know Christ, to know the Father, and to testify with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and bring glory to him. So the question is, are we reading it? Are we praying for the Spirit's help in understanding it, even as we did at the start of our sermon tonight? Do we realize what we have in our hands? Do we realize the power of the Word as we speak it? For these words are not ours. They're not of our devising. They are His. And these very things resting on this word, treasuring this word, treasuring Christ as the Spirit declares he is Lord. Worship him. He is the way, the truth, the life, the Spirit who comes alongside as our advocate, giving us the very words of Christ. These are the ways in which we remain in him. This is why it's important to abide in his word and let his word abide in us. And so we see 
Now we understand, I hope, the reason why it's better for Christ to return to the Father than to remain in his bodily sense. Because by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension, he ushers in this new age of the Spirit who is at work in the world to convict the world of its guilt and to guide the church into all truth. It is good, it was good for Jesus to go so that the Spirit could continue his work in his absence, not just locally among a few, but globally among the nations. So we think that our evangelism is hard. We saw the picture on screen, it's coming on again, the the picture at the start. We think our evangelism is hard. What difference will it make? What difference will these things make to our sharing of the gospel this week? Let's have the next slide up. Because we do think it's hard. But what difference will it make knowing that as we go out to people that he is, the Spirit is at work to convict the world of guilt And that even now, I pray he has been equipping us, guiding us deeper into the truth concerning Christ, that we might be better equipped to testify about him. What difference will it make when we're face to face with the friend that we assume is too tough to reach? Well, just maybe we'll see this that we will realize that in our evangelism this week we are helped massively the spirit is at work in us the spirit's at work in our city and even all of those people that we think you're too tough to reach you're too hard your heart is far too hard he is even at work there Do you remember that story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? You can tell I'm reading a lot of C.S. Lewis just now. Where in the witch's castle, there are people and creatures of all sorts in Narnia turned to stone. We think our people in the city are like that. What does Aslan do? He leaps in and he breathes on them. And slowly you see the hardness disappearing and the life returning. Do you know that's exactly what the Spirit's doing through his church? The Spirit is at work to breathe the very word of God into the hearts of those in our city who do not even see their brokenness and do not see their inadequate view of sin and righteousness and have no clue that they are destined for judgment. And he convicts. And he uses us. And he does not leave us on our own, but he equips us and guides us into truth. So maybe, just maybe, if we have become Christians recently, we will now have the courage this week to tell our family members. And maybe... For those of us who have those 
opportunities that come our way in the office this week or in the club or wherever that we might normally pass by thinking, this is hard. We might just think, I'm helped. And say, I had a great weekend at church. God's amazing. You know how much he loves us? We loved that. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let's pray.